Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton and this is Rules-Based Disorder here at Colin. As always, I am inviting anyone listening to go ahead and please join the queue and I will respond to any questions people have. And I always like to have these open chats. We get good questions from people. While I'm waiting for people to join the queue, I just want to briefly talk about a speech that the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, just gave at George Washington University in D.C. on May 26th. And I think this is a really important historic speech. And it's all but official acknowledgement by the U.S. government that it's waging a new Cold War. And the speech was specifically focused on China. It's titled, The Administration's Approach to the People's Republic of China. And in this article, he beats around the bush a little bit, but he makes it very clear that the U.S. is waging a new Cold War. And in his turn, the, the way he phrases it, he says that, the U.S. is trying to shift the environment around Beijing, which is the, his way of saying containment policy. And the exact quote in this speech is, we cannot rely on Beijing to change its trajectory, so we will shape the strategic environment around Beijing to advance our vision for an open, inclusive international system. So the the money quote here is, we will shape the strategic environment around Beijing. And then he spends a lot of time claiming that China is a threat to the so-called rules-based international order, of course, in which the U.S. makes the rules and orders everyone around. And he doesn't use the word containment, which is clearly, I think, an intentional policy, intentional decision. But in the New York Times, they published an article summarizing his comments in the speech. And the New York Times said that it's it, it amounts to containment. And they drew the parallel to the containment policy of the U.S. government in the first Cold War against the Soviet Union. I think it's really important to look at the speech. And it's not as aggressive as another speech that Mike Pompeo gave at the Richard Nixon Library, in which Mike Pompeo, former CIA director turned Secretary of State, said very clearly that the U.S. goal is overthrowing the government of China. In this speech, Blinken claims that the goal is not overthrowing the government. But of course, that's that's the way they, that's the the marketing, especially with from Democrats, but the reality is they want regime change. They've said that very clear. And he constantly reiterates this idea. He said, after the Second World War, as we and our partners were building the rules-based order, he constantly talks about the rules-based order and China as a threat to that rules-based order. And then he he. Again, the speech is not as aggressive as Mike Pompeo's was, but if you know how to read diplomatic speak, if you know how to read between the lines, it's very clear what he's getting at here. He says, we have profound difference with the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government. 
And then he says, we're not against the people. We're only against the government. They always do that. That's the typical propaganda. But saying that we have profound differences with the Chinese government is saying that we oppose the Chinese government. And he also talks about, which is really hilarious, he talks about freedom of speech. And he claims, this is another hilarious quote, for too long, Chinese companies have, have enjoyed far greater access to our markets than our companies have in China. For example, Americans who want to read the China Daily can communicate via and communicate via WeChat are free to do so. But the New York Times and Twitter are prohibited for the Chinese people, except those working for the government who use these platforms to spread propaganda and disinformation. American companies operating in China have been subject to systematic forced technology transfer, while Chinese companies in America have been protected by our rule of law. I mean, the hypocrisy is astounding. Not, not to mention, of course, he doesn't acknowledge that the CFO, the chief financial officer of Huawei, the massive Chinese technological giant, was imprisoned, basically, held in house arrest for years in Canada, and the U.S. government was trying to forcibly extradite her to the United States for violating illegal U.S. sanctions on Iran, which the U.S. cannot hold Chinese corporate executives or government officials accountable for violating U.S. sanctions on Iran. China... And its people are not held liable. They're not liable to U.S. national laws. And the U.S. government can't just impose its sanctions on the entire world and say that no country on earth can do business with Iran. But of course, Blinken is acting as though China is the one that is violating U.S. the, the, the rights of U.S. companies. I mean, the hypocrisy is absolutely astounding. And then talking about propaganda and disinformation and censorship on social media when the Biden administration just tried to create a de facto ministry of truth run by someone who worked at a CIA cutout doing regime change operations targeting Russia and Belarus. Now, I should say that because of widespread backlash, the Biden administration was forced to kill those plans for the ministry of truth the so-called disinformation governance board that was going to be overseen by the Department of Homeland Security, this Orwellian dystopian institution created by the Bush administration. But they tried. So it's hilarious hearing this government criticize China for the exact same things that Washington is doing. But whatever, I mean, there's a lot that I could go through in this very long speech, but you can find it at the State Department website, there's a full transcript. The administration's approach to their People's Republic of China. And it really is a historic speech in that it spells out pretty clearly that the U.S. government is waging a new Cold War on China. And again, if you look at the New York Times report on it, they say very clearly that the U.S. is spelling out a containment policy like the containment policy toward the Soviet Union. So with that said, people should... Feel free to join the queue here. Uh, anyone who has a question, I'm going to go ahead and start responding to questions. So please join. And I will, The it is public, so anyone can join the queue. We do have quite a few listeners. So anyone who wants to join the queue, 
while I'm waiting for that, I should also say that the U.S. so-called Summit of the Americas continues to fall apart because not all of the countries in the Americas have been invited. And the new left-wing president of Honduras, whose name is Samara Castro, she just tweeted that she said, I will attend this summit. She's talking about the Summit of the Americas. Only if all of the countries of the Americas are invited without exception. So we have the Caribbean countries in CARICOM, the community of Caribbean states, which is 14 Caribbean countries, have said they're not going to attend if all of the countries of the Americas are not invited. And the U.S. government has refused to invite Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. Now we have the Honduran president say she's not going to attend. And we also have Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, AMLO. He said he's not attending if, if Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua are not invited. And furthermore, we even have some right-wing leaders in, in the region, including Bolsonaro in Brazil, who, I mean, despises Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, and has carried out attacks on these countries. In fact, Brazil has a large border with Venezuela, and Bolsonaro's government has supported attacks, cross-border terrorist attacks inside Venezuelan territory. But even he said that he's not going to attend the summit. That's largely to protest the Biden administration because, you know, the, the Democrats have at least pretended to kind of criticize Bolsonaro because Bolsonaro was so close to Trump. He was like Trump's best friend in Latin America. So in protest of the Biden administration, Bolsonaro is not attending. And also the right wing president of Guatemala is not attending either. Jamate is his name. And he's not attending also because of the pressure by the U.S. government, by the Biden administration, because he also was pretty close to Trump. So it's, it's a complete disaster. The so-called Summit of the Americas is totally falling apart. Bolivia's president, the left-wing president of Bolivia, Luis Arce, has also said he's not going to attend in protest. So that means that Mexico, the second largest country in Latin America, Brazil, the largest country in Latin America, the 14 countries in the Caribbean, and Honduras and Guatemala are not attending this summit of the Americas in California, in Los Angeles in June. Furthermore, of course, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba are, were not, are not invited. And the U.S. government has said that they're not invited. And more than not just that, a U.S. State Department official said openly that the U.S. does not recognize Venezuela as a sovereign government, which is incredible. I mean, saying very clearly that they do not consider Venezuela sovereign. So this summit is, has been a complete disaster. It's falling apart more and more by the week. And the Biden administration has doubled down and saying it's not going to invite these three countries, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. So definitely keep your eye on that. It's very interesting. I'm going to now uh, take the first question here. And anyone else who wants to join in this Q&A, please jump in the queue. So I'm going to take a question now from Rina. Go ahead. Hi, Ben. Uh, 
interesting stuff as always. Um, I admire your intestinal fortitude for being able to even look at the State Department. I used (laughs) to watch State Department press briefings. I think I started during Obama for some strange reason, and I even lasted through a fair amount of Trump, except they were so sporadic, you never even knew when one was one was going to happen. But I, I just, I can't, I can't do it anymore. This Ned Price dude is absolutely <laughs> the worst, and even even the occasional, um, I I personally think the reporters who who are the State Department press corps overall are pretty good. Is not just uh, Mr. Lee, uh, but. A lot of them are good. Uh, a lot of them are foreign correspondents, and they ask pointed questions, and they follow up, and they're persistent. They're much better than the White House press corps, mm-hmm. but I, I I just can't do it. So g- good for you for boiling this down for us all. And and this Secretary of State, I mean, for God's sake, how can you get worse than Pompeo? <laughs> I mean, how 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 is that possible? And I swear this guy is. But anyway, uh, would you? And thanks also for that update as to what's going on with this meeting of the Americas or whatever the hell it's called. Can can you explain what's what what's going on with Venezuela? I I apologize for not having d- done any research myself, but I thought we were we were making nice with Venezuela again because we wanted their oil or something. <laughs> Of course, we always want something, and this sure doesn't sound like it. So I'm wondering, did that did that get backed off, or what's going on exactly with the with the Venezuela situation? Yeah, great question. Um, I was just muting. Sorry, I had this background noise. A motorcycle went by, but um, so uh, really, I'll answer that question. But really briefly, I'll just say on the State Department, and we should also keep in mind who Ned Price is. A little detail about Ned Price that's not emphasized enough is that he's former CIA. And I, I say former, of course, with, with quotes around it, air quotes. I mean, he's CIA. Ned, Ned Price was a longtime CIA analyst and he, for political reasons, he did this big political, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to say scandal. He did like this big um, uh, protest where when Trump came in, he resigned from the CIA and then wrote this article in the Washington Post about how, you know, Trump is such a danger to U.S. democracy and all this stuff. This says the guy who worked at the CIA, one of the least democratic, least transparent organizations on earth that has carried out, you know, how many coups and assassinations and drug trafficking. So, I mean, the fact that Mike Pompeo was CIA director and then became state secretary of state, and then now the spokesperson for the secretary, the State Department is also CIA. I mean, for me, it says so much about the complete merging of CIA with the State Department. And you see this so clearly with the Biden State Department, because Biden is clearly not making any decisions. I mean, he can barely give a public speech. It's Blinken who's making these decisions, and he's surrounded by all of these hawks. You know, Victoria Newland is, is not just a minor figure. Victoria Newland is the third in command of the State Department. The second in command is Wendy Sherman, who's also very hawkish. But, I mean, between them, Ned Price, who's CIA, 
Anthony Blinken, who's a hardcore war hawk, and I mean, also, by the way, will never say a single word criticizing apartheid Israel, even while it's shooting Palestinian-American journalists in the head. Between the two of them and then Wendy Sherman and Victoria Nuland, I mean, you're right. It is very similar to the Pompeo State Department. I would say the, the main difference is that Pompeo was extremely, I mean, he's extremely dumb and he was very bad at PR. And if you listen to him speak, I mean, Pompeo was politically almost the same as Blinken, but in terms of presentation, the opposite. Blinken is very smooth. He has clearly taken a lot of classes on how to give speeches and how to present things in a certain way and do marketing. So they're much more slick and sophisticated, but they're equally dangerous. They could be even more dangerous, honestly, because Pompeo was so blunt and barbaric about everything that he did. And of course, you also had Donald Trump, who couldn't wouldn't recognize nuance if it you know if he was hit with a hit with it from a ten foot pole or whatever. But like the reality is that the Biden State Department, the Blinken State Department, has really continued those policies, but in a very insidious way, talking about the rules based order and all that. But anyway, so to, to get into your question about Venezuela, which is a good one. I, I wrote an article, well, rather I responded, I did an interview with a Turkish newspaper because they're, uh, they were doing an, a report on Venezuela and a Turkish newspaper interviewed me. They figure out what's going on in Venezuela and they, and they ended up just publishing the interview. And so, but they translated into Turkish. So at my website, multipolarista.com, I published the English, the original answers that I gave in this interview. So if anyone who's interested, you can go check out a more detailed analysis of the situation in Venezuela over at multipolarista.com. But the main points that I'll summarize here. So the Biden administration has announced that it's going to lift, lift a few sanctions. Now, not the vast majority, a few select sanctions on Venezuela, largely because, as you said, the U.S. wants to make up for the Russian oil that it had been importing. Now, Russia was not responsible for a lot of U.S. oil. It represented around 8% of U.S. oil imports. But that's not insignificant when you look at the countries that provide oil to the U.S. I mean, Saudi Arabia is right there on the same level. And the, when, I mean, the U.S. also produces a lot of its own oil, but for a variety of reasons, because different countries have different um, grade oil and some oil is very heavy, some oil is, very, is much lighter, and you have to mix it and process it for different industrial applications and different vehicles. And then, of course, you know, there's diesel and regular, and there's all these different kinds of fuel and other applications for oil, which is in many products. So for a variety of reasons, and also to keep the price, price stable, the U.S. imports oil from several different countries. The main exporter of oil to the U.S. is actually Canada. But the point is, the reason I make those points is that 8% is actually enough to cause significant fluctuations in price. And of course, we see now that the inflation around the world has led to these really, or the really high energy costs costs has led to high inflation rates around the world. And the U.S. inflation is currently at the a 40-year high, the highest in 40 years. And... The Biden administration clearly recognizes that this is a major political problem with midterms coming up, and it's trying to figure out ways to bring down the price of oil. 
And one of the ways that the U.S. has been doing that is is incredible is actually by releasing oil from its its strategic reserves, which are reserves that basically the U.S. government has for a rainy day if there's ever an emergency. And usually that would be like war or something, but they've actually taken some of the oil out of those strategic reserves to try to bring the price down because of course when when demand is consistent and supply increases you would think that prices would go down but basically it had no effect on prices and a lot of this is because it's being driven also by these monopolies as economist Michael Hudson has been talking about but anyway the point is that the US really wants to find a way to stabilize the price so it's not necessarily that the U.S. needs Venezuelan oil, but it's trying to stabilize prices. So the U.S. made a political calculation. The Biden administration clearly decided that, at least in this moment, the war on Russia is more important than the war in Venezuela. So we have reports that show that the Biden State Department sent some diplomats to Caracas to meet with Maduro which is pretty hilarious, by the way, because the U.S. still officially recognizes Juan Guaido as fake president. So that's clearly an, an example of the U.S. Uh, you know, tacitly acknowledging that it does recognize Maduro as the real president of Venezuela, even though publicly it, it insists that it does not and insists that Venezuela is not a sovereign state. So the Biden administration sent these officials to Caracas, and basically they say that well, we don't know exactly what happened, but they say that there was some kind of deal worked out, although Venezuela has downplayed that. And the Biden administration later announced that it's going to be lifting certain sanctions on the oil sector. But there's a big caveat here. One, the U.S., as always, has a bunch of political demands. So they demand that the Venezuelan government has to make all these concessions to the right-wing opposition in Juan Guaido. And there's a, there's a constant... Uh, series of negotiations that are always going on. And this is going on in this round in Mexico. So the U.S. is demanding that the government make all these concessions. And furthermore, I think more important is the U.S. is also has been pressuring Venezuela to liberalize the economy and implement economic reforms that allow U.S. companies access to Venezuelan resources and a cut of the Venezuelan oil industry. So basically, as part of this process, Venezuela was forced to pass a law that allows foreign corporations 5 to 10% investment in state-owned companies. Now, I should stress that 5 to 10% is, a, is only a small minority share. So that would give these foreign companies, that is namely U.S. companies, some influence in decision-making in these state-owned companies. And the most important state-owned company in Venezuela is called PDVSA, that's P-D-V-S-A, which is the state-owned oil company. And now, basically, what it's, what's been worked out is that Venezuela is going to allow Chevron, which was kicked out by Hugo Chavez and had long exploited the oil in Venezuela, basically in return for the U.S. lifting some oil sanctions, which would allow Venezuela to export its oil, the trade-off is that, of course... The U.S. is demanding that Venezuela allow some U.S. companies access. So it agreed to allow 5 to 10% um, investment in PDVSA and other companies. So that is definitely not ideal. I mean, you don't want to see any of these 
evil U.S. corporations having influence over these industries. But again, five to ten percent is a far cry from significant influence, and they're still going to remain pub- in public ownership in Venezuela and government under government control. So, I mean, this is this basically is the deal that was worked out, and the Venezuelan government. I understand why they did this because. According to the UN Special Rapporteur on Sanctions, that is the leading UN expert on sanctions, Venezuela's government has lost 99% of its revenue due to the US sanctions and full-on blockade. I should stress that the US sanctions, which began under Obama in 2015, they were expanded into a full-on embargo, a Cuba-style embargo, which is what the, the Trump administration expanded them into. So because of that U.S. blockade, Venezuela lost 99% of its revenue. And Venezuela has been really heavily dependent on oil for over 100 years. This is, this is not a problem that, that's because of socialism or whatever. Venezuela has been a petrostate for 100 years, like Saudi Arabia, like Algeria, like, to an extent, Iran, I mean, a lot of these countries have been very heavily dependent on oil for a long time. The difference is that Hugo Chavez came to power through democratic elections. He entered office in 1999, and he decided that, that for the first time, Venezuela's government would use that oil revenue to benefit the vast majority of people, and especially poor and working people, and not just a small handful of elite oligarchs, many of whom, by the way, are foreign and they have dual passports, but, you know, they're like British or French or from the U.S. or whatever. They have dual passports and they're like these these like uh, parasitic elites who would take all the oil money. And the vast majority of Venezuelans lived in poverty and desperation. So that's a problem that Venezuela has been dealing with from the beginning of the Bolivarian Revolution 20 years ago. And they've tried to diversify the economy, but obviously it's very hard to do. And that's why the U.S. sanctions were so brutal. So basically, the U.S. blockade was a kind of economic blackmail, and it forced Venezuela to partially liberalize, partially privatize some of these industries, not fully, but partially, to allow these U.S. companies to come in so the U.S. would lift some of these sanctions so Venezuela could finally export its oil again so the government can get revenue to fund social programs for people. So that's the situation. Now, I should say that even though that's what's happening behind the scenes, the Biden administration still on paper and publicly, it does not recognize the legitimacy of the Venezuelan government led by President Nicolas Maduro. So it's a very weird situation where basically the U.S. is saying, look, we just need in this at this moment, we need more sources of oil to make up for the Russian oil that we have been importing because the the White House has a ban on all Russian energy exports. And right now they have decided to send out this diplomatic uh, offering to Venezuela, but I don't think it's actually really going to change that much. And well, it's going to help the Venezuelan economy, which is very important. And Credit Suisse, the Swiss bank, published a report estimating that Venezuela's economy will grow 20% this year. But in terms of the, the U.S. policy toward Venezuela, I don't think it's going to change that much. So that, that's what the situation is. That's where it's at right now. And the other thing I'll say is that another reason the U.S. was forced to do this is because Washington 
went to Saudi Arabia and tried to pressure Saudi Arabia to increase its oil production to make up for the loss in Russian exports. And Saudi Arabia said no, which is pretty interesting. I mean, Saudi Arabia is becoming slowly more and more independent from the U.S. And then OPEC, the oil producing uh, cartel, the countries in OPEC have said that they are not going to change their production schedules. They're going to continue as they were before the Russian military operation in Ukraine and the sanctions on Russia. So the other OPEC producers are refusing to produce more to make up for the lack of Russian exports. And of course, the Biden administration continues to refuse to go back to the Iran nuclear deal by demanding that Iran concede to new um, conditions that were not in the original JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. So what that means is that OPEC is not going to produce more oil. Saudi Arabia is not going to produce more oil. And Iran is not an option because the Biden administration can't lift sanctions on Iran unless it goes back to the deal. And it doesn't want to go back to the deal because Iran is demanding that the Biden administration go back to go back to the Obama era policies, which includes lifting some of Trump's sanctions and Trump's policies on Iran. And the Biden administration refuses to do that. Specifically, the Trump administration singled out the Iranian military branch, the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, as a so-called terrorist organization. So the Biden administration has refused to lift that terrorist designation, which means that Iran says that they're not, they refuse to negotiate until they go back to where things were when they negotiated the deal with the Obama administration. But the Biden administration is basically demanding that Iran agree to new conditions. So Iran is not an option either. So that means that the U.S. government was forced to choose whether or not it's going to allow Russian oil, and it refuses to do that. So it was left with no other option but to lift some sanctions on Venezuela. But like I said, I mean, I don't think politically this means that the U.S. is going to suddenly become an ally of Venezuela. Absolutely not. I mean, they're still continuing many of their aggressive policies. So I'm going to now go to Aaron, who's been waiting in the queue. Go ahead, Aaron. Uh, hola, Ben. How you doing? Como has estado? <laughs> so, yeah, hey, uh, <laughs> hey, uh, wondering if you could, uh, if you'd be interested in maybe talking about Mexico a little bit, uh, uh, maybe something a slightly less depressing and infuriating than U.S. politics, and you know, in particular, you know, I, you know, I like, like, I like what this guy Amlo says, and the Marina Party says and some of this but you know i'm just curious what you think if you think some of this is you know real or just more performative like are are these you know baby steps away from neoliberalism do you think they can continue in the future do you think they will actually potentially have some kind of economic alliance grow an economic alliance with china to perhaps be a little less reliant on U.S. power? And what, what happens when the U.S. In, in inevitably starts really pushing back hard at them if they, if they do try to do this? Just, just generally, what, what, what do you think is going on there? Well, I will say it's definitely the real deal. AMLO is the real deal. And to understand AMLO, we have to understand 
the history of the Mexican left, which, I mean, there was a very vibrant Mexican left throughout the first Cold War. And the government of the, the governments of the pre-party, the PRI, the so-called Institutional Revolutionary Party, which was the party that, as the name suggests, tried to institutionalize the revolution after the revolution in Mexico from roughly 1910 to 1920. The PRI, which became very neoliberal in the 1980s and 90s, it did, before that, it did have some social democratic policies, resource nationalist policies. You know, oil was nationalized and other natural resources were nationalized in Mexico after the revolution, and it was incorporated into the progressive constitutions that were later written by some of the left-wing presidents. And AMLO has really tried to bring back this kind of Mexicanist ideology, invoking some of those progressive leaders in the, in the, in the last 100 years in Mexico, and you know, saying that he's following in their footsteps. And, and AMLO, Andrés Javier López Obrador, who is known as AMLO, the acronym for people who don't know, or, you know, in, in Latin America with the, the system of last names, you know, everyone has two last names. Your first last name is your father's. Your second last name is your mother's. So he's also just known as Lopez Obrador. So AMLO, he comes from originally the PRD party, which is a social democratic center left party. But what happened is that basically the PRD party also became very neoliberal. So he left the party in protest and he created his, his, his own parties and is eventually became Morena. Morena is a very weak party. It's not really a party. It, it was really created to get him elected. So the thing about Mexican politics is that outside of the PRI and the PAN, which is the other major party, the PAN, which is the right-wing party of people like Vicente Fox and Felipe Calderón, who was like the George Bush of Mexico, those are like the two main parties, although they're both dying very rapidly. So what's what's happening in Mexico is basically the parties are kind of dying and it's becoming very personality driven. And AMLO, to the extent that Morena is this party, it was built as the kind of grassroots movements behind AMLO. So it's a very complicated party. There are a lot of different moving parts and there are different factions within it. There are more left-wing factions. There are more centrist factions. But basically, it was this kind of big tent catch-all party of people who were alienated by the the PRI and the PRD. Of course, there's not really anyone from PAN. The PAN party is very right-wing. But the pre-party had this history of there were some left-wing elements until it became really neoliberal in the 1980s. So there were people who were like on the left-wing of the PRI and the PRD party who left and became part of the Morena party. And they were behind AMLO and AMLO ran in three presidential elections and he actually won the 2012 election, but there was massive electoral fraud. I mean, just blatant electoral fraud and the, the neoliberal president before him, Enrique Peña Nieto, he was so corrupt that we, there was actually a Colombian hacker who admitted and he's now in prison. And there's a big article, I think it's in Bloomberg where he just spilled the beans and admitted to being paid by Peña Nieto to steal the election in 2012, to hack into the electoral system and do all of these shady illegal things, which is why he's now in prison. So what happened in 2012 is that it was widely recognized that 
that AMLO actually won and he refused to concede defeat. And he like did the, the symbolic like protest inauguration where, where and there's like this famous photo of him with the elector with the presidential sash and all of that. And he basically said that he was the president of the people from 2012 on. And there was all this massive discontent under Peña Nieto, who's very corrupt, who privatized, partially privatized the oil industry, which again was written into the Mexican constitution. So that was very controversial. And he was so corrupt that in fact, one of his major political allies, who was the head of the state oil company, Pemex, he later came out and spilled the beans because he was trying to get a sweetheart deal to not go to prison, although he ended up going to prison because of other complicated factors. He came out and spilled the beans and, and admitted and published these videos of the Peña Nieto government, which governed from 2012 into 2018. They were handing out bags of money. And we know they're bags of money because they were bribing senators and, and members of the other, the house. They were, they were bribing them with these bags that were transparent and full of money because they, people wanted to make sure that it was actually money that they were being given, right? So, I mean, just as blatant as, as blatant corruption as it gets. And then they were bribing these lawmakers in order to vote for the privatization of the oil industry. And also one of the main people funding this, one of the main institutions was this um, massive Brazilian company that was involved in, in huge corruption across Latin America. So, I mean, uh, Odebrecht is what it's called. So this is, I mean, in Mexico, we were talking about extreme corruption uh, combined with neoliberal policies. And as, uh, as I once saw spray painted in Mexico, actually, I saw this brilliant, um, graffiti protest graffiti. And it said that private, or that, uh, privatization is corruption. So we saw a clear example of that blatant corruption. So when AMLO came in in 2018, you know, he gave the speech in which he said, uh, this is a line that he's repeated a lot. He said, the long night of neoliberalism is over and there's a new dawn. And he campaigned openly against neoliberalism. And now that he's been in office, he's been criticizing neoliberalism. And he's done a lot of, you know, social democratic policies, including raising the minimum wage, which is very important because people were making just starvation wages. He has also tried to expand um, social programs, you know, healthcare education, and also has been engaging in some infrastructure projects. And some of those infrastructure projects, by the way, are being done with Chinese companies, including he's doing this thing called the Tren Maya, the Maya train in southern Mexico, because AMLO is the first president of Mexico in over six decades who's from the south of the country. The vast majority of Mexican leaders are from the north. And the South is the poorest region of the country. It, it tends to be ignored by federal politics. So he's tr doing this train to try to, to try to further integrate the Southern part of Mexico to try to bring more industry and jobs and, and try to develop the South. So, I mean, he is the real deal and he has been really reversing a lot of these neoliberal policies. He also just pushed through not only the renationalization of the oil industry, but also the lithium in Mexico, which is very important. And he is now creating a lithium state-owned company 
to, because he recognized that lithium is going to be the energy of the future. It's been called the white gold because lithium is so important for renewable energy technology and other technologies. Because every battery that we use in, in our phones and computers and electric cars uses lithium. So he also has been buying these oil refineries that were privatized that were in the U.S., and he's been, he bought them back and they now belong to the Mexican state again. So he has been engaging in what you could call a social democratic program, which includes state control of the natural resources of Mexico and, and expanding social programs. And I think, you know, there are criticisms, of course, but when it comes to his economic agenda, his social programs, I mean, he's been very solid, even in his foreign policy, which is not always great. Uh, it's one of the weaker areas. His foreign policy, for the most part, has still been pretty good. Mexico refused to recognize Juan Guaido as fake president of Venezuela. Mexico has played a role in, in facilitating negotiations on behalf of Venezuela and between Venezuela and the opposition, which has been helpful. Mexico also played an important role in opposing the coup in Bolivia in 2019. And Evo Morales actually went to Mexico at first and got refuge there before he went to Argentina. And many other members of the left-wing movement towards socialism party in, in Bolivia, they went to Mexico or in Bolivia, they went to the Mexican embassy to be protected from these, these fascist gangs of thugs in, in Bolivia who were, who were physically attacking left-wing politicians, especially indigenous politicians in Bolivia. So Mexico played a key role in opposing the coup. And then Mexico has also played an important role in, with, in reaching out to Cuba. And this is historic. Um, AMLO just took a historic trip to Cuba in which he met with President Miguel Diaz-Canel. And he said that he's going to pressure the U.S. government to lift the blockade on Cuba. Now, there are criticisms. Mexico, for instance, has played a very negative role in regard to Nicaragua and has the foreign minister of Mexico who's overseeing a lot of these policies. His name, his name is Marcelo Ebrard, and he is not as left wing as AMLO. And this gets to the more negative side of my analysis here. So he has played a pretty negative role against uh, Nicaragua, voting against Nicaragua at the UN and the OAS. And also Mexico, um, has, has not had a good position on Russia and has been pretty, and, uh, the foreign ministry of Mexico. It hasn't been openly very negative, but, uh, in, in some of its votes, it has not been joining in with other countries. Um, Argentina has been even worse on Russia and, has been criticizing Russia, but at the same time, so I don't, so to answer, you asked about China. I don't, I don't expect Mexico to, to form an alliance with Russia by a long, long shot. But to his credit, AMLO refused to impose sanctions on Russia and has maintained a policy of neutrality over Ukraine, which is definitely better than many countries. And finally, in terms of China, I mean, Mexico and China have important trade relations, but they don't really have much political many political ties. And I don't expect those to get much better because, you know, Mexico is this U.S. southern border and they have very complex relations with the U.S. The U.S. is responsible for over half of its trade. And I don't expect that to be replaced by China. So 
given the situation that Mexico is in, I mean, AMLO is really as good as it gets. And what's, what, what worries me is I think it's going to be a lot of, it's going to be downhill from here. AMLO's done a lot of impressive things, but the, he, the, in Mexico, there's only one term for the president and the terms are six years. And AMLO is a Democrat with a lowercase d through and through. He strongly believes in liberal democracy. He's a social democrat. He's not a revolutionary socialist. He's not talking about, you know, the, the, uh, the need for the proletariat to establish a proletarian dictatorship or whatever. No, I mean, like, he's a liberal democrat. And when his term ends, and it will end in 2024, he's going to step down. And there are two main candidates being discussed from the Morena party who could replace him. One of them is pretty good. Her name is Claudia Sheinbaum, and she's the current mayor of Mexico City. They're equivalent of mayor. She's the head of the government of Mexico City, and she's very progressive. Her foreign policy views are not very clear, but she would probably be a better option than the other candidate who's being discussed, who is the current foreign minister, Marcelo Ebrard. And very few people in the Mexican left think positively of him. As a foreign minister, as I said, he hasn't been awful, but he also hasn't been very good on Nicaragua and on Russia and on China. And he's a, a bit too pro-U.S. And a lot of people are worried that if Ebrard is the next president, that he might redo some of the progressive policies of AMLO. So a lot of people who support AMLO and Morena are hoping that Claudia Sheinbaum will be the next president. But at the end of the day, this gets down to one of the main problems with the movement behind AMLO, which I talked about, which is that the Morena party is not really a party. It is a very loose alliance of people who supported AMLO and who are kind of vaguely progressive. But there are a lot of internal contradictions. And when AMLO leaves office, that's when the party is going to become very weak and there's going to be a lot of internal fractures. So... I think right now, in terms of the situation in Mexico, AMLO is doing a lot of good things. Again, there is criticisms, but in terms of the reality in Mexican politics, there's not there there are no people to the left of AMLO who have any chance of coming anywhere near power. So I think that in with the, the material conditions in Mexico right now, he's as good as it gets. And I do worry that in the years to come, if he cannot leave behind some kind of institutional framework that will help consolidate Morena as a consistent, solid party. I and many people, I, many of my friends and people I talk to in Mexico are worried that it could come unraveled in the years to come. So it's, it's a, that's, that's the downside with these campaigns. Like, like if, for instance, if Jean-Luc Mélenchon in France can win the election, which you know, he came close this last time and and there's dis discussions of him maybe running one more time. If he can win, I mean, he'll probably be a one term president. And then what happens after him? His party is also very weak. It's mostly just a party to get him elected. His, his party is called La France Insoumise. So, I mean, that's the problem with a lot of these political campaigns is that when they're personality driven, and then the president leaves office, what happens to their political parties after? That's why it's important to build up a party. So I think that's, you know, a lot of people in the grassroots movement in Mexico, that's what they're focusing on now to try to keep that 
to keep that going because the 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 other mainstream parties, the the PRI party, which dominated for decades, and then the right wing PAN party, they are extremely unpopular because they're so corrupt and they have been decimated as political parties. So that's that's the way I see Mexican politics going. So really briefly here, I'm going to I'm going to wrap up soon, but I will take the final question from Fahim and then I'm going to wrap up. So go ahead, Fahim. Ben, can you hear me? I can. Yeah. Okay. Um, some observations uh, and uh, questions uh, also. So, with uh, regards to uh, Venezuela and uh, selling mostly oil, I kind of sensed like a little bit of hesitation uh, while you were saying uh, uh, that, and uh, um, and I it sort of reminded me of like a lot of the. Uh, American left would be like, oh my God, they're selling oil. It's bad for the environment and this and that. It, uh, it, uh, I mean, to, like being very judgmental. You were not, but uh, I, when I sense uh, that, I just wanted to bring, uh, that, uh, point up because, uh, it's, uh, so e easily I see, uh, a lot of, uh, the quote unquote lefties in the U.S. Uh, end up, uh, uh, criticizing and all without knowing the entire, uh, context. It sort of reminds me of, uh, like, uh, the time of Eric Garner uh, saying that he's selling loose cigarettes. So I'm like, okay, what's, what's the problem? I mean, the guy <laughs> is str struggling or George Floyd with the $20 thing. And I'm like, well, can we look at the issues uh, behind that? Or uh, uh, it's, uh, or you're sitting in your uh, uh, comfy coffee shop and uh, just uh, commenting and saying, criticizing people who are struggling without, uh, basically you're punching down rather than punching uh, up. And the other thing, uh, when you mentioned about uh, the oil prices uh, uh, to lower it, uh, you know, one of the good guides that I've seen over uh, time is uh, um, like when you look at the uh, uh, statistical oil review that uh, BP puts out every uh, year, you can uh, sort of, uh, you can look at the supply demand uh, 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 chart and also uh, superimpose on it the oil price, uh, you'll see that uh, the uh, oil price is very, very sensitive to even a slight change in uh, supply and uh, demand. And uh, with regards to uh, like Blinken versus uh, Pompeo, I mean, personally, I... I don't see much of a difference between uh, the uh, the uh, two. I mean, it sort of reminds me of when uh, Obama came into office and I was walking in, uh, I live in San Diego uh, area, and I was walking around my uh, town and everybody was so excited and all. And I'm thinking to myself, having uh, spent half my growing up years in Pakistan uh, during the Cold War uh, and looking at, uh, at U.S. foreign policy, I'm like, what difference is it going to uh, make? I mean, you guys are just jumping up and, and down. I'm like, what? Uh, I don't see any uh, difference that's uh, going to happen. And uh, 
Uh, I was told a lot of times that, well, he got the Nobel Prize. And, and I'm like, well, shoot, yeah. And then he went bomb, bombing seven uh, uh, countries. And uh, just as a tidbit, I mean, as you know, Nobel is named after the Beaufort family. Uh, for uh, he, he made his money selling uh, arms. And finally, with regards to the Iran deal, did you, uh, this is more of an instinctual question for you. Uh, did you ever think that we were going to go to the Iran deal when Biden came into office? Because my gut feeling was uh, no, uh, uh, because I just felt like with all the guys like Blinken and his entire uh, cabinet, and I'm like, these guys came from like Westex uh, or Westex and Pine Capital, which was basically in bed with the arms uh, industry. So I just didn't see, uh, I, I was like, okay, if we go back to the Iran deal, uh great uh, but at the same time i was like i just I didn't uh, sense any uh, uh thing on it and finally i'll send you a uh, text of with regards to maybe one of these days you may want to touch uh, back again on the color revolution uh as to i mean just like a refresher yeah so, great but, but that's it uh no. Yeah, great comments. And I'll, I'll briefly respond to them. Great, great comments from him. So first of all, I'll say in, in terms of the the oil thing with Venezuela, yeah, I mean, I wasn't in any way blaming Venezuela. I mean, we should keep in mind, Venezuela is responsible for less than 1% of global carbon emissions. And, you know, these countries that export oil, that are oil exporters, they're not consuming the oil for the most part. They're exporting it to the imperial core where people are consuming it. So Definitely. I mean, I wasn't blaming Venezuela. I mean, it should use any resource it has to try to develop. And that's that's what it's doing. Uh, my, my when I was saying that about, you know, the hesitancy about, you know, acknowledging that there is a very structural problem with the Venezuelan economy being a petrostate. My point was not necessarily because of the uh, environmental damage, which is something to consider. But I was just saying that in general, that a lot of these and this is not just Venezuela. I mentioned, you know, Algeria, Iran, a lot of these countries that are in the periphery, they do rely on exporting raw materials to the imperial core. I mean, that's that's by virtue of their status within imperialism. I was just saying that the Venezuelan government under Chavez and now Maduro has tried to diversify the economy because they recognize that by being so heavily dependent on oil exports and also export of minerals, that it makes their economy extremely susceptible to blockades and, and, and sanctions. And that's exactly what happened. So I, I wasn't blaming them for that. They've tried to do what they can to diversify, but it's extremely difficult. It's, it's a very difficult process. And as I said, I mean, Venezuela has been a petrostate for a hundred years. So it's, it's very complicated. As for this on, on Blinken and Pompeo. Yeah. I mean, I agree a hundred percent. They're very similar. As I said, I mean, in terms of their policies, they've continued pretty much everything. The main difference is the marketing. And Blinken is, I think, actually much more effective at selling a lot of these brutal policies around the world by using this language of democracy and human rights and the rules-based order, whereas Pompeo was just very thuggish and he was not an effective diplomat. I mean, 
He was a Koch brother politician, and then he became director of CIA and and then State Department head of State Department. So I mean, he was he was always a, a Koch brother neocon, and and as for the Iran deal, yeah, I agree. I mean, I didn't really honestly expect the Biden administration to go back. I mean, to be fair, Biden did campaign claiming that he was going to go back. But of course, he broke every other campaign promise. Promise. So why would he not break this one too? But that said, I do. I'm not surprised, but I do have to say that it is pretty revealing how not only have they refused to go back to the deal, but they've continued all of Trump's policies against Iran, including re- recognizing the IRGC as a so-called terrorist organization. That is pretty incredible. I mean, they have completely continued with this aggressive anti-Iran approach of maximum pressure that the Trump administration had. The difference is that they don't call it maximum pressure, but they haven't taken off any of the pressure. And it was maximum pressure before, which means it still is maximum pressure. And of course, I think that really shows that this policy is bipartisan. And we should we should not forget that that there were a lot of people in the Democratic Party who were against the Iran nuclear deal, even when Obama was the one who was negotiating it. So it does show that a lot of these policies are very bipartisan. And the Democratic Party is also full of these neoconservative anti-Iran hawks who also, by the way, love apartheid Israel. And that's a huge part of this because, of course, Israel does not want the U.S. to return to the nuclear deal. And although I don't think that Israel is the re- the main reason, I mean, I, I don't agree with this idea that, like, you know, the Israel lobby is what determines U.S. policy. It has an influence, but the U.S. empire is much more powerful than Israel, and Israel is a part of the U.S. empire. But it shows that that within the U.S. ruling class, within the Democratic Party, as well as, of course, the Republican Party, obviously Trump is the one who destroyed the deal, there is widespread opposition to any kind of diplomatic settlement with Iran. And they want to continue this very hardline policy. And, you know, there were a lot of Democrats who were totally supportive of of Trump withdrawing from the nuclear deal, just as there were a lot of Democrats who supported Trump's coup attempt against Venezuela and his escalation of the war in Yemen and his murder of Qasem Soleimani. So, yeah, it's more of the more of the same, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. When it comes to foreign policy, Biden has really continued most of Trump's policies. And I should say that David Petraeus, former CIA director, he also gave a speech when Trump was in office. And Petraeus acknowledged that, in his words, in terms of Trump's foreign policy, this is an exact quote, it's much more continuity than change. So we see this once again, this constant continuity with U.S. foreign policy between, you know, Republicans and Democrats. So in that sense, yeah, I'm not that surprised, but it just it's another example of Democrats continuing to do what Trump did. So great comments from Fahim, great questions from Reyna and Aaron. And and uh, I want to thank everyone who joined me in this. And I do two of these these episodes per week. So definitely join next week. And I will be discussing the election in Colombia, which is tomorrow, May 29th. So keep an eye on that. It's a very important election. And I want to thank everyone who joined me here, and I'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot.